And so if anyone has any comments about that, you're welcome to make them. Yeah. So we, we were actually wanting to, to Hang on. Sorry. The recording demands a mic. Hi, sorry, Emma O'Neill, working at Dublin. Um, we were actually wanting to bring in almost exactly the same approach, but for medicine rounds. But so for small animal medicine, when the students are on the rotations at the moment, um, they come around the rotation twice, but on the second time they're round, we wanted to actually start getting them to pose clinical questions, create answerable questions, and then um, create a sort of a, a, an evidence summary relating to that. So it would tie in perfectly with this, and it would be great to see people sharing, sharing approaches. Excellent. Um, this is brilliant again. Uh, if, I, I if it's brilliant, Dr. Fay gets the credit. Oh, it's great. Um, I think this could also be integrated in um, their clinical pathology um, teaching in, the, I think that was second year, it was a long time ago, uh, for diagnostic, evaluating diagnostic testing, and also in, I think in a, in a bit, perhaps, prevalence questions having to do specifically with referral bias, but I'm cranky. Um, but for sure, diagnostic testing, I think, yeah. Thanks, Heather. I particularly like the uh, metaphor of the goat rodeo, which resembles quite a lot of my classes too, I think. But um, I wanted to ask you about the open labs, which I think is really fascinating because my experience um, has something in common with that in that vet students, I was really quite um, astonished when I started the job because I'd been librarians for other subjects, how few inquiries I got from vet students. And then I realized the importance of anon anonymity to those. And I just wondered, do you find that you get um, many email inquiries about literature searches from vets or did you find that this drop in open labs thing was actually the only way that they were willing to kind of admit that they needed help? They ask me different things in email. Um, I find it interesting that they do expose themselves as procrastinators. Most of the email inquiries I get about an assignment, it, it is the day before it's due, the night before it's due. Apparently they think I do 11 p.m. reference. The sad thing is that sometimes I do, uh, which just encourages them. Um, but I find I do get some email questions and they're usually fairly pointed. It will be, you know, I need to tell Dr. Fate what type of study this is, and I'm not sure, are you allowed to tell me the answer or can you help guide me? I think this is a systematic review. It uses those words. Wait, it uses those words, but I'm not sure if it is. And usually in that case, it's a narrative review that the author um, mislabeled. But they're really very specific like that. And then whenever I have the labs, um, they come in usually not with specific questions like that. It, they are questions about searching. And they are, did I do this search correctly? Can you help me with this search? Can you look at these results? And if they're sitting in that two hours to do the whole assignment, which some of them do, they just budget that to be their homework and they figure that shouldn't take more than two hours, that's what they're gonna give it. So if they've already got the lab time budgeted, why not do it with a tutor there? Um, sometimes it gets to the more specific by the end, but usually those labs are the, the bigger searching questions. I'm, you know, I don't understand why, if I put these words in PubMed and put these words, you know, same words in Google Scholar, why am I getting the differences? I don't understand what you meant by the fact that I could limit my results without changing my search words. I, I, I saw where I saw where you were clicking on the screen. I just don't understand what you mean by that. So they are much bigger, broader. So I get them both, but it's different pools. 
And I think the anonymity sort of, I don't promise them anonymity, but I think that really does help, that they are much more willing to take the risk of saying, I'm not sure what's going on or could you validate what I'm doing without the subject expert in the room. And I think that is one of the big takeaways of working with a, another subject colleague. I don't know if it happens if you are in a clinic and you've got a case, we'll pick on cardiology, you've got a case that may be sort of cardiology and you've got a more general practitioner and a cardiologist both standing in the round or standing in the room with the case, you know, is someone going to be more honest if the cardiology specialist steps out with the GP or not? I, I think it could be sort of a similar situation. But it's one of the big benefits that I've seen as I'm collaborating with the subject specialists more is they sort of do appreciate that I'm not gonna turn them in for, in, in one case, and it was an undergraduate class, admitting that where they went was Yahoo Answers. Just a quick question. You are not involved in assessment. I uh, am not yet. We are talking for 2017 about me being part of the PICO question assessment. But it wouldn't be that I would probably influence that assessment and that rubric, at least not the first year. It would be coming in with her rubric and seeing how scalable is it to give more complete formative feedback. That assessment scares me. Other comments or questions? Um, my, my question was around, you said that it was going to get integrated into a different part of the curriculum. And, and my question was, have you had resistance with people saying, why are they needing to know this when they could be learning about pharmac you know, pharmacology or a different type of topic? Why is this stuff really important? I think that's one of the key things, actually, in terms of this. We haven't gotten far enough into developing the new classes to see that resistance, but I suspect it's coming. But what I can tell you is it was really interesting. I look at my involvement in the curriculum, which in some, class, in some cases it's fairly intense. With this class it is, and that's why we're talking about it. But I could equally spend an hour telling you all the places that I think I should be in the curriculum, and I'm not. Um, because it is all about us. I mean, all of us. It's all about you, it's all about you. And so I do look at it and say, why don't you want my help? One of the most fascinating things that came out of the curriculum mapping, as we mapped the classes, so their objectives, their assignments, as I said, down to the exam question level, to those competencies, and then because it was in-house programmed and we wanted all sorts of flashy, blingy bells and whistles, you can do heat maps of where things are and just exquisite visualizations. I looked at that and I thought, all right, so, New graduate outcome nine is the, the world of the librarian, the world of the information professional. And I thought, I'm not very involved in this curriculum, so we are gonna see an enormous hole. I am, I'm gonna have such a high workload, we're gonna look at this, and the only place we're gonna see NGO nine mapped is maybe this class and maybe something in first year. It's fascinating, all the people that have things in their syllabi that map to my competency who've never talked to me that I've never helped them develop an assignment, they've never asked me for an opinion about anything, and I have no idea what they're doing. And so that started some interesting conversations. And a lot of people, really, what they're doing is fantastic, and the only thing I could do is help them to focus it a little bit more, or tell them perhaps about newer tools or something that has been updated since they did it. And some people really, I am scratching my head 
and looking for a way to bump into them in the hallway and take them to a coffee or something to be able to talk to them about the fact that per, perhaps we, in the new curriculum, could, could help that. I have a question as well. Um, the fourth year um, clinical rounds, mm -hmm. uh, sort of um, PICO task, have there, has there been a cohort that's done the second, the, the second year and the fourth year yet? Mm -hmm. And has there been a, you know, a marked improvement in, in the results of that? I wasn't clever enough to ask Dr. Fate that, um, to be able to answer that, so I'm not sure. It's something that you're welcome to email us and ask, or if there's a way for me, if other people are interested, if there's a way for me to feed that back through the conference, I'm happy to go and ask her that. I also wasn't clever enough to ask her if she wanted to be on Skype or FaceTime during this. But I, I don't know, because I'm not involved with the fourth years at all. Um, I know that she considers it pretty successful in those two fourth year rotations. But I haven't talked to her about seeing an improvement or, and I'm actually not sure if they started contemporaneously that she would have differential data of before they, she did the fourth year and has some data before they would have gotten something in the second year. Um, she may, she's cleverer than I am about thinking ahead and that she might want to measure something. I would not have thought of that. Um, I might be the only vet student in the room, I'm not sure. Um, I know it's slightly different in America, but I'm wondering what, whether you think the second years see the relevance of the teaching when they're in their second year? We're trying, is what I can say, and really trying to set this, emphasize the clinical decision-making and having to make the, um, the recommendation. But the honest thing, the honest answer probably is, it still is something that they're assigned to do, they're slogging through, and they figure both, they're overconfident in what they know, and they'll figure it out by the time they get to fourth year. And I, I do get some inquiries from fourth years who say, okay, now I need to know that, can I make an appointment? But more I get inquiries from people as soon as they're out of school, about three to five years, and all of their knowledge isn't new anymore. That's about when they begin to run into me. We go to a lot of conferences and exhibit the exhibit hall about our services. And about that three to five year alumni mark, they begin to need to search because things are changing. And so I think it's a longer tale of will it be relevant or not? Because unless you've got a really specific assignment like this, probably you can still be creative and bluff your way through it. Because if we're not asking you to do something that's got a longitudinal aspect to it, you can get through a lot of stuff in Google Scholar as long as you don't have to reproduce it. Because that's something you've got to remember about Google Scholar as a practitioner or an instructor or a student. It can see a lot of things that the other databases see. It can see a lot of things that they don't. But you can't ever reproduce a search in it because its algorithm, it, it's a toy box for Google. They didn't say, we're gonna document this, we're gonna keep it stable, we're only gonna improve it, we're gonna keep everything that's good. That search algorithm and that result algorithm change constantly, and what it can see to be able to mine changes constantly. But I think the way that we teach, you probably could, sadly, this is being recorded, you probably could get out of, the, you, you could bluff in there. And I think it's once you're out in the broader practice where 
you know, you do need to see something that's longitudinal, you do need something that's reproducible, you do need to go verify something that somebody else said, that you begin to see the value of being able to get to search somewhere where you know the sources that are being searched, you can look at and learn um, from the documentation about how you can construct something that's reproducible, what it can and can't do. We're just about run out of time, but just one more question actually for me, if I'm allowed, um, is, is this is something that I often worry or wonder about in terms of our students, and certainly we have the inquiries coming back in after they've been out in practice a little while. Do you um, make the resources and things available to the graduates um, after they've finished your course and they've gone on to other things? Do you do that? We have a very strong alumni program, but it doesn't include being able to log back in and use the databases. There's no, this is where I am glad it's being recorded, there is no vendor on the planet that will write us that license as much as we would like it. So that's one reason that you saw in everything that we did, we were asking them to learn to search Cab Abstracts and PubMed. It isn't that PubMed is superior to a subscription search like Ovid Medline or EBSCO Medline, it's that people can use it. And so we're, in, really trying to give them a tool for lifelong learning by being able to learn how to search PubMed. And with Cab Abstracts, of course, it's the bigger, broader, deeper um, pool of veterinary information. And if we teach them the basics of that, then they could get a subscription to VetMed resource. So what we'll do as alumni, they can come back and ask us for reference searching, for literature searching. We do provide some services to our alumni as long as they're in private practice. And then we provide vet med resource for them on, de on request for a couple of years. The idea being we can't provide it to you as a private practitioner for your whole career. But if we can provide you with a login for a few years, you can make the informed decision about the fact that it is useful and you do want to subscribe or it doesn't fit the way that you search um, and you don't need it. And so we do the best that we can, and we're always looking for different things that we can add as resources or services, but so much is tied up in price and licensing that we can't do what we would like. And we do not have the equivalent of the RCVS license, or the RCVS library membership. The AVMA and others don't have an equivalent. So I've advised a number of Americans to join RCVS library, which they can do if they're not a member, it just costs a lot more. Exactly, yeah. Well, thank you very much. Um, I think we all agree that was an amazing presentation. So thank you very much to Heather. Thank you. Very thank